Hi, this is uh, Dr. Peter Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of interviewing two of the uh, contributors to a leading article uh, titled Cytoreductive Surgery with or Without Hyperthermic Interperitoneal Chemotherapy in Patients with Advanced Ovarian Cancer, the OB-HIPEC-1 Final Survival Analysis of a Randomized Control Phase 3 Trial that was recently published in Lancet Oncology. Uh, I'm going to be speaking today with Lot Aronson, who is in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology in the Netherlands Cancer Institute. Um, and also, of course, with Wilhelmine Van Driel, who is in the same department in the Netherlands Cancer Institute in Amsterdam, Netherlands. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation to the podcast and speaking with us about this really very important article. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, uh, Piero. First of all, I would like to thank you to give the opportunity for us to uh, discuss the results of our study. And of course, I would also take the opportunity to thank all the collaborators uh, who participated in the study in the Netherlands and Belgium. And uh, without them, it would not be possible to, um, to have these results, of course. So great thanks to them. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, uh, Wilhelmine and, and, Lo and for, uh, again, participating in this uh, in this podcast. Uh, and congratulations to to both of you and, and the rest of the team as well. Um, so I'll, I'll start with Lot and uh, I'll ask the first question. And I wanted to start by asking as to what is the evidence before this study on HIPEC and interval surgery? In other words, what were the findings from the uh, original study? Yes, so also from my side, thank you for the invitation, of course. Um, so maybe let me introduce the study design of the OVHIPEC-1 first. Um, the OVHIPEC-1 was the first RCT to evaluate the addition of HIPEC in patients with stage 3 ovarian cancer. Uh, the uh, study was initiated in 2006, and it was published in 2018 in the New England uh, Journal of Medicine. So it's an open-label, randomized, controlled uh, phase three trial. Uh, and as Wilhelmine already mentioned, patients were recruited at eight hospitals in both the Netherlands and Belgium. Uh, so in total, 245 patients were included in the trial. Um, maybe it's good to mention some of the key inclusion or eligibility criteria. Uh, so patients were aged 18, between 18 and 76. Um, they had not progressed during at least three cycles with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, because in all of these patients, the disease was too extensive to perform a primary cytoreductive surgery. Um, let's see some other inclusion criteria are uh, WHO performance status of zero to two, uh, normal blood counts, and an adequate renal function. Uh, so in this trial, patients were assigned in a one-to-one -one ratio to receive um, interval, uh, interval cytoreductive surgery, either with or without uh, the HIPEC treatment. Um, and the randomization was done at time of the surgery uh, when it was anticipated that um, there was no more residual disease than 10 millimeters. Um, yeah, let's see, then uh, maybe it's good to mention the stratification factors in this randomization. Uh, so it was stratified by institution, uh, previous suboptimal primary uh, site reduction, uh, and the number of the abdominal regions involved. 
so that was the introduction, but let's go back to the question. And the question was, what are the main uh, findings of this study? Uh, so at uh, 4.7 years of follow-up, uh, we showed that the addition of HIPEC uh, prolonged uh, recurrence-free survival with three and a half months, and it also prolonged overall survival with 12 months. Uh, and this is with a significant hazard ratio of 0.67. Um, and uh, it's, uh, of course, also very um, important to say that there were no important uh, adverse effects on the cl uh, important clinical outcomes like toxicity. So we did not see uh, more toxicity when uh, um, treating patients with HIPEC um, and the mortality was low uh, with only one death among those 245 patients. Um, there was no delay in reinitiation re of the adjuvant chemotherapy uh, and we saw no impairment of the quality of life. Um, yeah, maybe lastly, it's good to mention that um, we did a health economic analysis and we see that uh, adding HIPEC is cost effective in the Netherlands and also in comparing uh, healthcare systems. Yeah, so um, I think this is the summary of the uh, original study. Perfect. Very well. So that obviously then brings us to, to the next question, uh, because this, this study is uh, when uh, those patients were followed for a median of uh, over 10 years. So what were the main findings and the highlights as it pertains to this particular study? Yes, exactly. So um, the 10-year survival update uh, confirms the benefit of HIPEC, as I um, just uh, told you. So it delays recurrences. Uh, also, after 10 years, uh, after the update, we saw an improved RFS of 3.5 months uh, with a hazard ratio of 0.63. Um, and if you look at the uh, curves, uh, at the Kaplan-Meier curves, um, you see that HIPEC seems to delay the recurrences rather than preventing them, uh, like many other uh, treatments for the advanced uh, ovarian cancer setting. Um, uh, but we see a plateau after five to seven years, approximately. And then secondly, um, it improves overall survival. So uh, with 12 months, with a hazard ratio of 0.70. Um, and then the new data in this um, update uh, was on the subsequent therapy lines. So um, uh, we, we saw that neither the number of lines uh, nor the type of subsequent treatment was different in the two treatment arms. Uh, so most frequently administered is uh, platinum-based chemotherapy, followed by the non-platinum-based chemotherapy. Um, and the only difference that we see in subsequent therapies, if you compare the two treatment arms, uh, is that in the high-pack group, you see slightly, a slightly higher percentage of patients that receive platinum-based chemotherapy. So in other words, um, uh, uh, high-pack delays recurrences after six months so that patients are eligible for another platinum-based chemo line. So um, that's an important finding. And I think from these results, we can conclude that uh, the observed improvement in the overall survival uh, is unlikely to be attributable to uh, a difference in uh, subsequent uh, therapies. 
and HIPEC does not impact these lines. So that's also important. Excellent. Thank you so much Lord, for uh, um, providing that overview of, of the findings and of course, obviously confirming the uh, the original uh, findings in, in adding this additional uh, information. And we'll, I'll, we'll turn over to uh, Wilhelmine as well now for um, some of the uh, additional questions. And Wilhelmine, the first question I wanted to ask you is, um, what were the tools to evaluate resectability prior to decision on surgery? Um, this question came in from some of our fellows. Did you use CT, MRI, ultrasound, or laparoscopy? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, uh, there are two moments where we evaluate uh, surgical resectability. One is uh, before start of treatment, so to decide whether patients receive primary uh, surgery or neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And at that moment, uh, patients, uh, all patients in the Netherlands are routinely discussed at an MDT. Um, and uh, the centers who participated are were high-volume high centers. Uh, so they perform uh, at least uh, well, <laughs> at least 20 side reductive procedures uh, annually. Um, but uh, the, the, uh, these centers perform more than uh, 20, uh, 20 procedures a year. Um, so in general, the, the clinical practice at that time is to review patients based on the uh, clinical assessment, uh, including the ultrasound and the CO125. Uh, and the CT scan, and then uh, discussing it at the MDT to decide whether um, uh, a surgical resect, uh, whether a patient um, was eligible for primary uh, CRS. And if the disease was too extensive or the patient was in a poor condition, then it was decided to uh, give new adjuvant chemotherapy. So it really uh, reflects daily practice. Um, and the second time uh, had to evaluate whether patients are eligible for knee, for interval site reductive surgery. Um, I think the, the general idea is in the Netherlands that all patients should have a chance on, uh, on, on a surgical procedure, uh, unless there was really progression. So mm -hmm. uh, all those patients who did not progress, and again, that was discussed at an MDT, um, patients were eligible for interval CRS and then uh, asked for um, the, the HIPEC study, the OVPEC-1 study. Very well. And uh, as a follow-up to that question, this question comes from Jorge Hegel. He, uh, he's in Venezuela. Um, he asks, why did you not use the peritoneal carcinomatosis index? And also, if you had to recommend only one of those methods for this evaluation, which one would it be? Yeah, that's a, a good question. I think at the uh, start of the study with the OVPEC-1, when we designed the study, um, we discussed it also with our colorectal uh, surgeons, colleagues, uh, who just performed their HIPEC study for colorectal uh, carcinoma in 2003, and they used the region score. And um, so they divided the abdomen in seven regions. And for the colorectal uh, situation, um, uh, the region score um, made it clear for them that if there were more than five regions involved, then uh, adding HIPEC was not as beneficial. So um, at that time, in our hospital, region score was routine care, so which we also use for our patients in, um, in daily practice. So then it was logic for us to use the region score. Um, and I think the main, uh, the, the, the most important thing is that 
when you evaluate patients during side reductive surgery, it's important to use a schematic way. And whether you use the region score or the PCI, I'm not sure if that makes a difference. But over time, the PCI score became much more popular and much more used. Um, so, uh, which is the reason for the OVPEC2 study and also for our clinical daily practice now, we use the ovarian specific PCI score, which also includes the evaluation of the retroperitoneal lymph nodes, which is not part of the PCI score used for the colorectal patients. So if I would recommend a score, then I think the ovarian specific PCI score would be the um, um, yeah, best scoring system. Very well. Uh, we'll turn back to Lot. And uh, this question comes from Guido Balsaki in Argentina. Um, he asks, following the publication of OP, OVPEC-1, there have been discussions about the lack of stratification for important prognostic factors like BRCA status, FIGO subclassifications, or histological uh, subtypes. Does the post-hoc subgroup analysis performed in this study provide any answers to these observations? Yeah, thank you for this very important question. Uh, maybe I can first comment on the stratification for uh, important prognostic factors. Um, yeah, as we know, stratification is a tool to assure that the treatment arms are balanced for important known uh, prognostic factors. Uh, but one could argue if uh, stratification is necessary always in relevant large trials because we know that the imbalance is mainly uh, or likely to happen in smaller trials. Um, and although I agree that trial designs indeed benefit from stratification, um, um, yeah, maybe the disadvantage is that it may lead to uh, few patients in very uh, uh, many strata. Uh, so then in turn can lead to imbalances um, in the end. Uh, and it's, it's uh, sometimes gives issues in reporting outcomes separately um, by the strata. Um, uh, but then, yeah, maybe you could go back to the suggestion. So the uh, BRCA status, for example, um, this is a stratification factor that was not known during, uh, at time of randomization. So uh, it was not that feasible to include it in this trial. Um, I think testing for BRCA1 was not yet incorporated in clinical practice at that time in 2006. Um, and it was less well recognized that it was an important prognostic factor. Yeah, so for this trial design, it was not uh, feasible to include it. Uh, and for the histological subtype, um, yeah, it's, it's also a little bit about feasibility. Uh, because if you have cytology on ascites, uh, which was um, the case in many patients, or a frozen section, then you cannot always distinguish um, the subtype. Uh, so that makes it less feasible. And if you talk about the um, last one was the FIGO subclassification. So then we are talking about FIGO 3A, B, or C. Um, uh, yeah, in this trial design, investigators should have um, assess this on the baseline CT scan, uh, and we know CT scans are less reliable in assessing peritoneal uh, metastases than, for example, uh, laparoscopy or MRI. Um, yeah, so because it's less reliable um, and maybe not that feasible, this is also a, a stratification factor that we did not include. 
Um, but I think the important thing is that the randomization process in the OVHYPEC-1 uh, was successful and it assured uh, a balanced, uh, balanced groups according to those prognostic factors. Uh, and in the post hoc um, subgroup analysis that we did, uh, we did not see any evidence for a differential uh, HYPEC uh, benefit um, uh, in those subgroups. Very well. And, um, yeah, I think that uh, should answer the question. Yes, thank you. But yeah, I think as a, as a follow up question, and, and I'll turn over to Wilhelmine on this because it's kind of related. Uh, this question is from Matt Wager, University of Wisconsin. He says the BRCA germline and somatic subgroups did not appear to derive benefit from the addition of HIPEC. In the era of PARP maintenance, does HIPEC warrant further investigation in this subpopulation? Or should HIPEC be reserved for tumors that do not harbor BRCA mutations? Yeah, I think uh, uh, this is a very an interesting um, field that we uh, still, I think, know not everything um, about. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I think based on the post hoc subgroup analysis uh, we performed, um, we showed that there was, uh, although there was a significant test for interaction, um, we cannot yet conclude that BRCA mutated patients uh, do not bear, uh, derive any benefit from HIPEC treatment. And there was a small number of patients per subgroup, uh, especially in the BRCA mutated subgroup. And um, it, this definitely warrants uh, further investigation. And um, since it's a post hoc subgroup analysis in small groups, um, uh, I think it should not drive the clinical uh, decision making yet. Um, but it could very well be that uh, at some point we conclude that in the BRCA mutated patients, the benefit of HIPEC is much less and therefore should not be performed. But at this moment, it's not uh, uh, clear yet. And, and Wilhelmine, as a follow-up to that, Sita Sahinakar asked, um, do you think that in this BRCA mutated group, the regimen that is used for the chemotherapy matters? Um, you mean as the, the, the regimen regarding the, uh, the chemotherapy or the, the, the regimen of, of HIPEC or not? The regimen on HIPEC, yes. Yeah. I think in the subgroups by the HRD status, um, uh, if you look in, that, in those subgroups, then the results show that the patients without a BRCA mutation, but a HRD phenotype, seems to benefit uh, most. And although originally... We hypothesized that uh, that the patients who were BRCA mutated um, would benefit most because they are um, unable to repair the DNA damage. But a possible explanation for the difference we found, uh, specifically that the HR proficient with an HRD phenotype benefited most, is that um, hypothermia itself um, brings tumor cells in a sort of brackenness state. Um, which in combination with uh, the cisplatinum um, um, makes the cells more, uh, well, more sensitive to the chemotherapy and uh, makes these cells uh, less capable of repairing the DNA damage, whereas the patients with a BRCA mutated tumor already have such a deficient repair mechanism that uh, adding HIPEC um, does not add anything, does not add anything. So that could be um, an explanation. 
that the, uh, the BRCA mutated group um, yeah, benefit less from the HIPAC than the uh, BRCA wild type group. Yeah. And, and um, it's somewhat of a similar question from Giuseppe Caruso. I'll ask a lot. It's, uh, is there any specific subset of patients within the BRCA mutated group, HRD status, um, for whom you would recommend uh, HIPEC or for whom you would absolutely discourage the use of HIPEC? Um, yeah, so I think this, this question indeed repeats a little bit what Wilhelmine already uh, uh, told us. So um, for now, the results from our postdoc sub subgroup analyses uh, should not drive clinical decision-making yet. So uh, this definitely warrants further uh, investigation. So that's on the BRCA mutated or the HRD status. Um, however, there's another study um, uh, investi uh, who investigated this from our colleagues at Gemelli in Italy. Um, mm. And in their observational cohort study, they will also conclude that HIPEC uh, benefit is more seen in BRCA wild-type patients instead of the BRCA mutated. But this is actually in line with our findings, so uh, that's another argument to um, uh, study this very interesting uh, findings in further research. Um, yeah, maybe for um, to, to answer the question, is there a specific subset of patients or how can we um, uh, uh, identify which patients to give HIPEC and uh, whom to give not. Um, we are also uh, performing a study uh, and there we look into predictive biomarkers in the tumor microenvironment. So we mm. look at the, the immune cells being present and the stroma cells and we use whole transcriptome uh, mRNA, mRNA uh, RNA sequencing um, to look for differentially expressed genes or maybe um, uh, signatures or differences in the cellular composition of the tumors that may um, give us some uh, tools to identify patients uh, for HIPEC. Uh, so I hope that we uh, publish, uh, can publish the results soon. Very well. Uh, and we'll mean this question from uh, Guido Vlasaki in Argentina. He says, the use of PARP inhibitors and bevacizumab as a subsequent treatment was relatively low in this study. Do you think that all the latest advances in systemic therapeutics could modify the observed results of your study? Yeah, it's an, um, of course, uh, the, the OVPEC-1 study was a study which took 10 years to accrue. And uh, over time, uh, yeah, a lot of progress has been made uh, concerning the maintenance therapy. Um, although in that time, in the Netherlands, the use of PARP inhibitors and uh, inhibitors and uh, bevacizumab was relatively low because it, it was not included in the evidence-based guidelines uh, yet. And um, so most patients in the OVPIC-1 trial uh, uh, did not receive uh, the maintenance therapy. Um, and I think we continue uh, to evaluate the efficacy of HIPEC um, in, in modern era uh, on real-world data uh, where patients do receive PARP inhibition and um, some of them uh, get bevacizumab as well. I think in, in an, um, an interesting concept would be uh, to evaluate the combination of PARP inhibition and HIPEC um, uh, because the, uh, uh, well, the, the combination of postoperative PARP inhibition and HIPEC uh, is studied 
in the uh, GOG study, which is currently running in the GOG 3068. And that study also includes uh, stage four patients, which is uh, also interesting because stage four patients were not included in the OVPEC-1. And for the um, OVPEC-2, uh, in which we um, evaluate the effect, uh, the, uh, the effect of HIPEC in the primary setting, um, uh, PARP and bevacizumab maintenance therapy is allowed. And uh, we are currently also uh, setting up a trial to evaluate the translational mechanism of the combination of PARP inhibition and HIPEC. So I think in the end, the ongoing trials uh, combining the PARP inhibition and bevacizumab and HIPEC will tell us a little bit more about the role of HIPEC in relation to the current uh, maintenance therapy. Very well. Um, so I'll turn to Lot for this question. And of course, obviously, when speaking about HIPEC, um, you can't avoid talking about quality of life. Um, so this next question is, can you speak briefly about the quality of life component of HIPEC and uh, what we have learned so far in the literature about it? Yeah, so we uh, conducted the quality of life uh, site study, of course, um, after um, uh, after uh, publishing the OVHIPEC-1 results. Um, in the OVHIPEC-1, we used EORTC validated uh, quality of life questionnaires, uh, including a general one, the C30, uh, about quality of life in all cancer patients, uh, and two tumor-specific modules, so the OV28 for ovarian cancer patients, uh, but also the CR38 for the colorectal um, questions. Uh, they were handed out at five time points um, uh, during the treatment. And um, uh, we saw no significant difference over time between the two treatment arms. So it means that HIPEC does not have an, uh, a negative impact on the quality of life. Uh, yeah, and that's a very important findings for patients, of course. Um, and um yeah, I think we can conclude from these um, results that probably the uh, quality of life is much more influenced by the cytoreductive surgery uh, rather than adding the HIPEC to it. So, of course, there is morbidity in these patients and you see uh, uh, um, symptoms like uh, gastrointestinal symptoms or neuro uh, neuropathy, um, but it's not different in the two treatment arms. Um, and this is in line with other studies that have been uh, published, uh, like the study by the, our, our uh, Korean colleagues, Lim uh, and colleagues. They also performed quality of life uh, study and found the same. So there is no uh, difference in uh, patients receiving only cytoreductive surgery compared to uh, CRS plus HIPEC. Um, yeah, so I think we can conclude that. Um, uh, the concerns regarding the toxicity uh, should maybe not be a limiting factor to uh, uh, treat patients with HIPEC. Very well. Um, so obviously, yeah, very important findings to to highlight to to our audience. Um, I'll turn to Wilhelmine now. This question from Jessica Mauro in Italy. Um, she asked concerning the use of patient-derived organoids to inform on drug sensitivity. May this be something that will be useful in the future? to determine which patients may be eligible for HIPEC? Yeah, I think there are two aspects which are um, uh, important for this. It's, one, you can use these organoids to get more information on the mechanisms of uh, HIPEC. So you can treat these organoids with 
high back and chemotherapy and, and on normal thermic conditions and see what happens and see if which various drugs are uh, are useful and if another drug than cisplatinum is also useful. I think that aspect is very important and um, uh, and should be done to get more information on HIPEC, on how HIPEC uh, actually exerts its effect. The other question, whether you could use it for uh, the patient itself to uh, test whether uh, which regimen we should use. I think that that faces us with a logistic challenge because um, at the time it needs to get these organoids growing and uh, test the various conditions. I'm not sure if it's feasible to use it per patient. Um, and again, I, I think also what, what you need to take into account, not all chemotherapy has a synergistic effect uh, under hyperthermic conditions. Uh, so for instance, Texol is um, much more difficult to get the right temperature uh, to have a synergistic effect. Um, uh, and um, so I think those aspects should be taken into account as well. So it had to, to use the organoids to get more information on the mechanisms, definitely yes. Um, but for patient-specific advice on which regimen you can use, I think that's more challenging. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this question uh, comes from Seda Sahinakar in uh, Turkey. And she's asking, what are your thoughts with regards to recommendations for HIPEC in this setting for non-serous tumors? I, I think we don't have any uh, specific trials or studies for this uh, specific subgroup. Um, so patients with non-serous tumors were also included in the ov hypec one trial. In this sense, based on what we know now, um, the HIPEC protocol uh, that we use in the trial is also indicated for the non-serous uh, uh, tumors, patients with non-serous tumors. Um, yeah, maybe we could speculate that for the non-serous subtypes, uh, which are less chemosensitive mostly, uh, the higher local dose, which you can administer uh, with um, uh, HIPEC, uh, might be more effective and could explain that it also uh, has a benefit for those patients with non-serous uh, subtypes. Um, yeah, so based on what we know now, and although the numbers were uh, small in the trial, um, in the Dutch guidelines, we uh, also include to um, treat those patients with uh, the high-back regimen. Very well. Yeah, and it's important to, to highlight um, the, 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 the choice of words you, you chose, uh, you know, certainly speculating. So it's important to highlight that um, the, the data is not so concrete in, in, mm -hmm. those, uh, in those tumors. Um, well, I mean, this question is from Matt Wager. Um, he has HIPEC improves overall survival, likely through the control of abdominal recurrences, which are often fatal. Could HIPEC be further studied in secondary cytal reduction or with interval surgery and more aggressive removal of tissue like nodal dissection and interval surgery to try to further mitigate the effects of abdominal recurrences in this population? Um, yeah, I think it's... Um, well, it's I think based on the results of the OVPEC-1, um, we uh, indeed saw that there were fewer peritoneal recurrences when you uh, apply HIPEC. Um, so um, adding HIPEC probably um, 
delays uh, the occurrence of peritoneal disease. So uh, the majority of the patients underwent complete site reduction in the OVPEG-1. Um, and I'm not sure if um, also removing the lymph nodes um, would make a difference. So we know from the Lyons trial that removing the lymph nodes uh, does not uh, add anything uh, with regard to recurrence-free and overall survival. So I, I'm not sure if uh, routinely remove uh, all uh, nodal disease or remove normal-looking peritoneum um, would make any difference regarding uh, survival. Uh, I don't think we have any evidence for that. And regarding the, mm -hmm. regarding the second question for the secondary CRS, um, yeah. I think there are two studies. Um, one is already published, which was performed in Royal Sloan uh, Kettering. Um, uh, and in that study, patients with a platinum-sensitive um, recurrence were randomized in two arms. One received five cycles of chemotherapy and, and, and side reductive surgery plus HIPEC, and the other one received six cycles of uh, chemotherapy um, following surgery. Um, so uh, in that study, there was no difference, but HIPEC was performed with carboplatin, um, which could explain the fact that uh, HIPEC did not show a benefit because carboplatin is, um, it takes much longer for carboplatin to be in an active state um, as compared to cisplatinum. Uh, and also the patients in the high group only received five cycles of chemotherapy, whereas the other, the control arm received six cycles. Um, the other study, which was recently printed at the ESCO this year, uh, was the Sheeper study by, uh, by Jean-Marie Klaas. Mm -hmm. uh, and that study, uh, patients received neoadjuvant chemotherapy for their recurrent disease. And um, after six cycles, they were treated with either surgery alone or surgery plus HIPEC. And that study uh, also showed an, um, an improvement in survival in the HIPEC arm. And I think there is some, um, uh, if you compare the SHIPOR and the study from uh, Oliver Zivanovic from the MSK and the OVPEC, um, then the ones who are positive, um, they have in common that patients are first treated with neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So there is some sort of selection um, because you don't operate on those patients who get uh, who are progressive, uh, who have pro progressive disease. So it might be that uh, HIPEC is beneficial for those patients who are pretreated. Um, but I think we need the results of the of the ongoing studies to um, to see yeah, if, if if that's true or not. Yes, and I, I should highlight that we do we do have a, a podcast on the sheep war study as well for those who are interested in listening to that um, discussion. Um, Lot, I'll turn to you. Um, this question um, comes from Jessica Mauro and is regarding uh, PIPAC, so pressurized intraperitoneal aerosolized chemotherapy. Um, do you have any experience in this approach, and are there any exciting trials evaluating this specifically in ovarian cancer? Yeah, it's interesting that there's also a question about PIPEC, of course. Um, uh, however, on the at the Netherlands Cancer Institute, we do not have any experience with uh, the PIPEC treatment. Uh, I think it's still an experimental uh, method, and um, the experience that exists is mainly in patients in the palliative setting. 
Um, so yeah, what about um, uh, interesting literature? Uh, I think so far mainly phase one and two trials uh, have been published, uh, but there are uh, two phase three trials um, ongoing, uh, uh, which is nice to mention. And the first one is a pipeback OV3 from uh, Professor Bakrin from France. Uh, and there is one um, from Professor Samashekar in India, uh, and they both compare pipec uh, with conventional systemic chemotherapy in patients with uh, platinum-resistant recurrent ovarian cancer. Uh, yeah, so I think those uh, trials are interesting, and the results are uh, awaited. Yeah, so upcoming uh, data coming uh, coming our way on that uh, on that aspect of uh, treatment. So a um, couple more questions for you both. Uh, Wilhelmine, I'll start with you. If you had to design the study differently, uh, what would be your modifications uh, today? <laughs> yeah, I think it's, um, it's, it's good. Well, if, if you look back, there's always something you can improve. Um, but it's also good to highlight that when you design these surgical trials, it's um, it's it's always important to keep in mind how feasible it is, and um, and also keep in mind that there are huge logistical challenges. I think there are much more logistical challenges than if you uh, investigate um, medical treatment. Um, and I think in the ideal world, we would have liked to stratify for um, uh, BRCA status. And uh, the actual surgical result of the study, um, whereas now we uh, the patients were randomized uh, during the study when we anticipated a complete or near complete uh, side reductive result. Although, if uh, we, older did, we also did an analysis uh, to compare the results of the control arm with the uh, results of the, uh, those patients who were not part of the study. And uh, we did not sh uh, see any difference in survival in both um, arms. So I think for the, the selection bias uh, during the study, I think uh, we sort of um, showed that there's no uh, real selection bias with respect to the patients who are participated in the, in the study. And um, um, I think, well, if if you if you if we would have timed the randomization after the surgical uh, procedure, uh, that would offer the option to include the stratification by completeness uh, of surgery, um, and we would, uh, in, well, uh, we would the outcome of the randomization would not have influenced um, uh, the surgeon decision during surgery. So, I think uh, that would be. Uh, modification if I would have to design the study again. And the other one would be to have more specific criteria uh, regarding the decision whether a patient should be uh, operated first, so by primary side reductive surgery or receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy. I think if we would have uh, had specific guidelines, then that would not be uh, a question mark for uh, those who did not participate in the study. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it, it's always a challenge. And uh, when we look back and, uh, you know, certainly anyone that has conducted a, a prospective randomized trial always gets has that question. 
Um, and uh, there's many things that we learn from conducting these trials. Um, so the last question to Lot, I'll ask, um, this comes from Luigi Davitis regarding um, the implementation of, of HIPEC in standard practice. And, and his question is, even though the results from randomized controlled trials show a benefit for HIPEC in interval surgery, it is still not widely used. What, what do you see as the barriers to wider adoption and how would you overcome uh, some of these barriers? Um, yeah, so maybe, it, uh, so in the question it says it's not widely used, but it is still used in uh, many countries and already included in uh, multiple guidelines. But I think one of the uh, barriers was the lack of the long-term survival uh, outcomes. Uh, so hopefully now that these data have been published, uh, we hope that more colleagues around the world are convinced um, uh, yeah, that they should treat their patients with uh, the high-back treatment. Uh, and this hopefully will lead to further implementation um, of the treatment in the uh, guidelines. Um, yeah, uh, maybe... Yeah, well, <laughs> of course, I had a lot of discussions uh, over the last five years after the publication. And um, I think with IP chemotherapy, um, since the 90s, the first post-operative adjuvant uh, IP chemotherapy trials, um, it, it, it led to a, a huge controversy. Um, and um, But, well... There's one thing I would like to, to say that the gyne on community is not always um, consistent when evaluating results of clinical trials. And um, has, so for some aspects, a positive study is uh, accepted widely and, um, and some studies are not. Um, but I think um, one of the barriers could also be that um, the way the care is organized in your country. So if I look at the Netherlands, then the care is very much centralized. So uh, every patient, no matter where you live, uh, has the same access to the same treatment. So therefore, we've got 10 centers who perform uh, HIPEC, uh, and all patients um, have access to that. Um, if you have a country where the care is much less organized, then um, you also have much less experienced centers. And if you want to start implementing HIPEC, then um, it, it really makes an effort. You really have to make an effort involving all different specialties. Huh? So the anesthesiologist, the, the nurses on the ward, the nurses in theater, uh, the perfusionist, uh, your, your gyne team, uh, your surgical colleagues. So that really, uh, you really have to make an effort uh, for starting the HIPEC program. And uh, you also must have a certain amount, a certain volume. Um, so you're, you can uh, have your learning curve and uh, the results are stable. So I think that can be a hurdle. Um, um, yeah, so I think that's the... Um, but again, if, if I discuss the results and the high pack with colleagues, then there are also uh, a lot of um, uh, enthusiastic uh, colleagues uh, who perform high pack in a routine way. And I, what I also would like to stress is that it's very important to uh, have the right, uh, to, to select patients in the right way. So um, 
at the moment, we do not have evidence that a high pack for primary CRS is beneficial. So we should not use that. We should not give high pack to those patients. And patients with a platinum uh, insensitive uh, recurrence, um, we should not operate on them with high pack. And I think, yeah, we. Um, so I would, <laughs> I would make an argument to um, believe less and. Um, um, act more upon the, the evidence which is available. Well, thank you both so, so much. Uh, Lot Aronson and Willemine Van Driel. Uh, it's really been a pleasure speaking with you, learned a, a great deal. Uh, thank you for discussing some of these challenging questions as well. Uh, congratulations to you both, to your co-authors, and, and obviously to um, to all the patients who participated in, in this study. This this is a, a really great contribution to, to the field and, and uh, I commend you for it. Congratulations, thank you. Well, thank you very much for giving us the opportunity. It was a pleasure. Yes, thank you so much. <laughs>